You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, in case you didn't remember this morning, Jesus Christ is coming back, and it's good news. And the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, gives us a glimpse into the future, and we are so anxious to see the future. In 2005, you may have caught this in the news, a group of students at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts held a time traveler convention. Uh, They set the time and the uh, location very precisely, Saturday night, 10 p.m., the uh, latitude to 42 degrees north by 71 degrees west, roped off an area in case there are any collisions as people from the future came into the present. And uh, they recruited this. There was a frequently asked question page and it invited people to come from the present. They were asked, if you can just give up a Saturday night, there's a very small chance at being the biggest event in human history. Uh, for people who are coming from the future, they requested we bring some sort of proof that you need come from the future and don't just dress like you do. Uh, we welcome any sort of proof, things like a cure for AIDS or cancer, solution for global poverty, or a cold fusion reactor. Uh, these are MIT students. And that's what I would ask for, a cold fusion reactor. And then they kind of, you know, did the countdown, and they backed away, and they waited, um, and uh, no, one, no one came. This is, a, a, this is a, an outcome that Tina Fey had predicted on SNL uh, when she said, a student at MIT is hosting a time traveler party this week with the hope that people from the future will show up. Too bad, people from the future already know the party stunk. <laughs> uh, now... I find this whole thing very intriguing. Uh, not just because I worked as a chaplain for several years at MIT, uh, not just because I am fascinated with uh, what uh, Dr. Einstein has taught us about time and space not being absolutes, but that bending in relationship uh, to each other. I'm fascinated with this whole thing because I have an unhealthy, unhelpful preoccupation with the future. What I'm telling you is that I worry. We all worry. And that's my definition of worry, by the way, an unhealthy, unhelpful, unhopeful preoccupation with the future. It's a misorientation uh, toward the future. Now, we all worry. And I think at the heart of the worry is some sense that I don't know what's coming, but I know I don't have what's equal to the task. I'm not going to be strong enough to face whatever whatever comes. And I got to tell you, this is a uh, an uncanny weekend to be preaching about worry because, you know, if you read the news, you're wringing your hands or you ought to be because as a nation, we're asking the question, are we going to war again? And, and, and if we do, what's going to happen? Or even if we don't, what's going to happen, right? And there's so many things to worry about. The global situation, politics, geopolitics, the economy, education, healthcare, and that, all that has nothing to do with like our own personal lives, like my own health and my own financial situation. How will I pay for uh, an education? And so it's so important that we have a book in the Bible that speaks to us about the future. And the book is called Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, of things that are to come. That's, what, that's the first verse of the book. That's what it says. It's written by a prophet. Uh, he, he calls himself a prophet, New Testament prophet, early church prophet. Uh, he was in exile, and he had plenty of things to worry about. As Maria told us, he's in jail, he's in exile, not where he wants to be. 
And it's written to churches, followers of Jesus Christ, as they gather on Sunday morning, first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, around Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They've lost their prophet for one thing, but they're wrestling, what does it mean to follow Jesus' way when we're surrounded by Rome's way? And we worry about this ascendant culture as Roman hegemony is consolidating and increasing here towards the end of the first century. Let's open up this book. I want to do something different. Would you pull out your Bible and uh, open it to chapter 5 of Revelation? Don't stand yet. It's page 997 if you're looking at the Pew Bible. I want to read this text for you. Uh, because I want to invite you to gauge your imagination. This is a word picture, you know, before video. Uh, this is first century video. So you've got you, you to engage your imagination. And I, I'm going to make it easy for you by reading. And if you do whatever you need to do in order to really see this vision, this revelation. Um, but then what I want to do, after a few reflections I'm going to share with you, I'm going to ask you, then let's all stand. And I want to read together corporately as an act of worship as though we were ourselves in this throne room. Uh, some of the verses of this in worship. So just listen now, but hold the Bible open. Revelation chapter 5. This is John. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see. The lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered and by your blood you ransom for God, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down in worship. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. John is deep in worry, weeping bitterly, we read. Why? Because a question hangs in the air. This mighty angel has put it before this heavenly host. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Who? And there's this search Searching all of heaven, all of earth, and everything that's under the earth, everywhere. No one's worthy. Now, what is a scroll? If you were John, if you had a Jewish background, and you lived in a Roman culture, you would understand two things about this scroll. Two associations you'd hold. First of all, the Jewish background would tell you that this scroll is scripture. The word that's used literally in, in Greek here is biblion from which we get our word Bible. This is God's story, the scripture. This is the story of God's redemption in the world, the way in which the one who created the world is restoring the world, bringing back the shalom, the goodness, the the peace, the justice, the righteousness for which he had created, the glory. Being a Roman, John would also associate this uh, biblion, book with a scroll and scrolls were used oftentimes by kings and we are here in a royal throne room and the person who sits on the throne would take a piece of parchment and ask a scribe to write on that the decrees the laws the edicts scroll would be rolled sealed with wax given to a courier and Transported to some portion of the kingdom where in the reading of the scroll, the laws would be enacted. As they are read, they become history. And so, to see, to find that there is nobody who can open this scroll and read its contents is to see that there is nobody worthy To read the story of God into what you and I call the human condition. The brokenness, the pain, the sorrow, the injustice. Who can do it? No one's found. It means at the end of the day, when all is said and done in the future, we'll be left with nothing but the human story. Nothing but our own despair. And so John weeps bitterly. And then... A tap on the shoulder, maybe. A little quiet voice to the side. Hey, rumor has it there's a lion in our midst. Rumor has it that of the tribe of Judah, one of the sons of Israel, of of the family of Jesse, the son of David, there is a lion who has conquered. And this would conjure for John great hope. He would imagine a mighty Roman general 
rising out of the field of battle victorious on a great horse with power and might and strength and probably blood all over him. And he's now the new rightful king and he'll come and he'll open the scroll and he'll read the rest of history. And then there's the surprise. We read, this is what he heard, but when he opens his eyes and he actually looks, he does not see something that looks like a lion. He sees a lamb. Lion is his identity, but lamb is his nature. He sees a lamb, probably a year old, such as would be used for the sacrificial system, badly wounded. He'd already been slaughtered. Just a baby sheep. And this is the one who has conquered. Not by the sword, but by the cross. Not by vanquishing his enemies in violence, but by submitting himself to their judgment. Being vanquished himself, he unleashes all of human history. He unleashes the great story of God that brings redemption into creation and makes all things well. See, it's not the Roman way that will culminate history. It's Jesus' way. It's not strength, power, wealth, and violence that will win the day. It's service, poverty, and peace. And John sees it in that moment when he sees the lamb seated upon the throne. This is my point. Jesus wins through weakness. Remember that. Jesus wins through weakness. This, by the way, is the interpretive key to the whole book of Revelation. I know it's a hard book to read. Uh, some of us don't want to read it at all because it seems filled with violence. And Friedrich Nietzsche called Revelation the most rabid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. You know, that was probably a compliment for Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Because he was obsessed with the Roman way. It was all about power and strength and might for Nietzsche. So he was looking for that. He missed the interpretive clue. You don't want to go on to read all those stories of battle that are in the book of Revelation until you read how it is that Jesus conducts and engages evil in the world. It's as a lamb. It's as a victim. And this is how he works. Through weakness. It's also the interpretive key to worry. It's what will give you and what will give me a reorientation to a future that we might join them and sing a new song. I'm gonna give you three implications briefly of this time travel for our lives. The end, the center, and the word. First, the end. And I'd like you to hear this point. Your weakness will never keep Jesus from winning on your behalf in the end. Your weakness will never keep Jesus from winning on your behalf in the end. I know many of you are readers. Do you ever find yourself sorely tempted to turn to the last page of the novel and turn back the corner and just make sure that all your favorite characters are still there? <laughs> My daughter always does that, right? Because life is like a mystery novel and you don't really know how the story is going to work out till the end. In fact, in a mystery novel, there are all these themes and subplots you don't think are significant at all, but they all, when you get to the end, they all resolve. And so when we find out that Jesus is the last word, that at the end of history is Jesus, the lamb, sitting triumphant on the throne, then we know the weakness in our lives, our vulnerabilities, our hurts and pains, somehow these become integrated into the grand story of God. And they're about Jesus' victory on our behalf. The very things I wished didn't happen to me. He redeems them. And they become part of his salvation somehow. 
we lived in the Los Angeles for several years, and on my wife's birthday, my kids and I hatched this plot. We were going to surprise her. It was too late to actually do it on her birthday. We needed months of planning. We were going to take her to her favorite restaurant, which is CPK, and uh, we were going to take her to Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion at the Greek Theater. And so, you know, we bought the tickets, and we hatched this whole plot. It was all subterfuge and misleading. We didn't actually want to lie to her, so we had to be really, you know, clever in the way that we redirected her attention as we got ready for this for months. And then on that Friday, to get her into the car and to somehow get lost and end up at, oh, CPK, and it's dinner time, you know, let's, let's have dinner here. And, uh, and then get out and get caught in this traffic jam, and which ended up being like, the, the queue to, park, to get into the parking area. And the, the amazing thing is, it worked. We totally snowed in. She had no clues. And she's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? This is so weird. And, and here we are at this place. And then, you know, and then we got, you know, right there in uh, the front of the Greek theater. And we said, surprise, this is Garrison Keeler. This is your birthday present. And she was so delighted. And it was great. And then we discovered she knew all along. Because she had opened the credit card bill when it came back. I was away at work, and she saw the tickets. But here's the deal. You know, if you wonder how it is that someone could be so, like, laid back. She had all the right clothes for the evening. She, <laughs> she, <clears throat> she knew how the evening was going to end. See, that made all the difference. When we were pretending to be anxious... Pretending to worry, she wasn't. She knew how the story ended. And that's what God has given us in Jesus Christ. He is the end. It's going to be okay. Jesus wins. And so your weakness, it won't get in the way. God says, I have a plan for you. For your welfare, not for your harm. To give you a future with a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, all things will work together for good. They're not all good, but they'll all work together for good. For you who love me and are called according to my purpose, Romans 8, 28. So now we have the answer to the question that Sam Ganji asks Gandalf when he says, could it be that all the sad things will become untrue? Yes, yes, yes. All the sad things will become untrue. And so we can face weakness because Jesus wins in the end. Number two, the sinner. In weakness, Jesus draws us to a new center. I don't know about you, but I think this chapter, Revelation 5, is the most beautiful depiction of worship in all the Bible of any literature. And you notice that it's about Jesus at the center. Jesus is there, and as he begins to be recognized for who he is, then the four creatures begin to sing, the elders begin to sing, the myriads of angels begin to sing, and then pretty soon all of creation, all of creation is being re-centered around the lamb who was slain. And it's just because he's so beautiful. It's just because what he's done is so beautiful. We're attracted to it. And it helps us to know who we are and what, the, and what life is all about. Worship, worship. Did you know that the word eccentric comes from the word to be out of center? So when the world feels eccentric, it's because it's out of center. And worship is that discipline that pulls us back into center. Eugene Peterson writes, failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks. I take that personally. At the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. If there's no center, there's no circumference. 
People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustained purpose. Jesus is the center. A few years ago, community leaders in Charlotte wanted to offer a lunch to celebrate Billy Graham. And so they invited him and Billy had to buy a new suit. And uh, as he got up at the rostrum to just say thanks for this lunch, he, he told a story about Albert Einstein. And he said Dr. Albert Einstein was on a train from Princeton when the conductor was coming down the aisle clicking tickets and got to Albert Einstein and uh, Albert went, oh gosh, and f- couldn't find his ticket anywhere, briefcase, no, it's not there, he's very embarrassed, turning red and the conductor said, it's okay, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. And, and Dr. Einstein graciously nodded, thank you, and the conductor went on his way. But as the conductor turned... At the door to leave the car, he looked back and he saw the great physicist on all fours looking underneath his seat. And he went running back and he said, oh, look, Dr. Einstein, it's okay. You don't need a ticket. We know who you are. And he looked up and he said, young man, thank you. I know who I am also, but I don't know where I'm going. (laughs) And then Dr. Graham said, you know why I'm wearing this suit today? I bought this suit for two occasions. First of all, this luncheon. And second of all, this is the suit that I'm going to be buried in. And when I'm dead, you read that in the news, I don't want you to remember this suit. I want you to remember, I know who I am, and I know where I am going. See, because he's worshipped Jesus all his life. Jesus is his center, and he knows who he is. Sometimes, sometimes it's only in our weakness that we can be recentered in Jesus Christ. I wish that were not the case. But sometimes it takes the pain. I read recently a story about a man named John Mulder, the uh, president of a major theological institution in America, Presbyterian minister. His life just imploded. An undiagnosed bipolar um, disease combined with a habit of drinking just a little bit too much lapsed into full-blown alcoholism. And he had a string of events of which he is not proud at all. He described himself as living at that point with a toxic level of shame and guilt, spiritually bankrupt, in and out of recovery. He found himself praying again and again, Jesus, forgive me. It's not that he didn't know Jesus offered forgiveness. He just wouldn't believe that it applied to him. His life was out of center. He he began to pray a different prayer in time that became the, the turning point, the inflection point in his recovery. And these were his words, God opened me up. Simple prayer. God, open me up, please. And he says, I'm not exactly sure why I prayed that prayer, except that I had reached the end of my rope, and I didn't know anything else to say. And I think the significance of that prayer is he decided to stop managing the circumference and focus on the center. And it was just a few days later that he began to have a strange experience. He was putting peanut butter on an English muffin in an apartment he shared with three other men who were also in recovery in the little kitchenette. He found himself surrounded by what he described as a bright light and warmth. And it never happened to me, and it had never happened to him before, but at that moment, he sensed a presence, and he heard a voice inside of him say, I am with you. And that's the truth for you, too. Sometimes you just don't know until you're going through a hard time. But as you worship, Jesus is giving you a new center. 
In weakness, Jesus draws us to a new center. Let me just ask you a question one before I move on to our final point. When you find yourself in trouble, ask yourself this. Who is this for? If you're exhausted, if you're stressed, if you're hurting, ask yourself, who is this for? Is it for me? Is it for somebody else? Or is it for Jesus? Because if Jesus is in the center, you're okay. Anything else? And you need to make a correction. Third, the word. God's word puts weakness to work. You see, Jesus Christ is the word of God who changes history. And as he, the only worthy one, takes the scroll, breaks the seals, and begins to read, he is reading from his word history. He's putting his own weakness to work in the world. And as we take this book, the Bible, and as we read every day, his word unfolds in our life as well. We begin to take on the same kind of powerful, conquering weakness that he took on. Now how? This is the last in our series on the Bible. I just want to say very quickly, how is it that the Bible can be authoritative? Because we talk, it is God's, it's God's authority, this book. It holds his authority. <clears throat> and yet we're the ones who are called to act in ways that are not really, in situations that are not really t- discussed in the Bible. Well, to answer the question, I want to briefly uh, call to your mind an, an analogy that N.T. Wright used. And I've changed it a little bit, but he says, imagine that there was a Shakespearean play, five acts, but the fourth act was lost. And imagine that out of deference for great William Shakespeare, the playwrights of the day decided it wouldn't be right to write the fourth act, but we still want to stage the play. So what we'll do is we'll get some of the most gifted, talented actors and have them inhabit those first uh, three acts and have them read that final fifth act and do improv in the fourth. In this way... The Bible becomes authoritative for them because they're not free to make up the themes and the plots. They live into it, but they do so in their own way. And so they live creatively, new and original lives that are inspired by this text. Well, that's the opportunity for us as well. And this is how we are to understand our weakness. The fact that we see these bowls, golden bowls, which are the prayers of the saints before Jesus tells us that This vision encompasses people who are struggling to live out what God is calling them to in challenging circumstances every day. People, in this case, in Asia Minor or in Turkey, their concerns are in these bowls. And Jesus is the one who gives them strength in their weakness to engage those challenges. I read a great book this summer, and I do recommend it to you. It's by Tyler Wig Stevenson, called The World is Not Ours to Save. uh, He writes about a man named Daoud Nasser, who lives in Palestine on a 100-acre plot of land that was, has been in his family since 1916. Um, but he's now he's near Bethlehem. He's surrounded by uh, Israeli settlements, and his neighbors do not want him there. And they have decided to make life very hard for him. They've cut off electricity, water. They're not allowed to build any architectural buildings on this, so it's called Tent of Nations. They live in canvas and caves, and they've been very resourceful. Uh, they're sustainable off the grid. And you can go and visit Tent of Nations tomorrow if you choose to do so. And what you'll see is their motto is, we refuse to be enemies. We will not turn you into an enemy. And we will not let you turn us into enemies. Because we believe in Jesus. 
And so when the Israelis come and bulldoze down their front gate and start to run through this property, uh, Daud runs out and he says, what is it that you would like? And they say, we've, is there pretenses? We've been, we have to inspect the, this land. And Daud says, well, then you are my guests. But first you must come and have some tea. And when in the middle of the night, their car is stopped at a checkpoint and his sleeping children are dragged out of the car by soldiers wearing face paint and carrying huge automatic weapons, he speaks in English to his kids because he knows that the soldiers will understand that. And this is what he says to his kids. Do not be afraid. These soldiers are people. They are young and frightened like you. They are human beings too. So don't be scared. Wow. If you ask him why he does this, he says, in this conflict, there is an expectation of how you will react. When you act differently, it confuses people and changes the situation. And I would say brings God's story. And I'm, they have found a way not only to be pro-Palestinian, but to be pro-Israeli. And most of all, pro-Jesus. And that's what the Lamb will do. And I see that in so many of you so beautifully. This is the power of what God is doing here at University Presbyterian Church. Just this week, I ran into one of our members. She said, you know, I went through this heart-rending divorce a few years ago. But the interesting thing is how Jesus is redeeming that. And, and, and that experience is giving me a story that I have been sharing. And he's using it as I minister to other people right now who are going through the same kind of pain. She said, I would never go back and have that happen again. But it's becoming, in a strange way, a gift. And a blessing to others. And this is happening all over the place. We've got people, the men's purity group. This is what you're doing. The, uh, those parents who are, of children who are struggling with adolescence. This was, is what you're doing. Uh, the financial freedom in this community that's helping people with their finances. Same thing. Out of our brokenness, we are finding Jesus Christ's life and hope and grace and sharing it with others. There's a scroll in your life. Only Jesus can open it. Only Jesus can read it. But as he does, the people around you are hearing him. Jesus wins through weakness. Jesus wins through weakness. Charles Kettering said, we should all be concerned about the future because we'll have to spend the rest of our lives there. Right? That makes sense. The future's important. But in his earthly ministry, Jesus says, can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? No. Let me reorient you. Corey Tenboom used to say, worry does not empty tomorrow of sorrows, it empties today of strength. And so I remind you, friends, you are not alone. And Jesus is the last word. So we can sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fears are gone. Is it not worth worshiping a Lord like that? the lamb upon the throne. Let's pull those Bibles back out and uh, imagine that we're part of that heavenly host because we are and read together. Um, what I would like to add, this is a little tricky, I would like you to read the quotations only uh, so we can sit ourselves in these shoes. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9, 12, 13, and 14, the quotations. And don't forget, there's that last word in verse 14, amen. Everything's indented except for that Amen. Uh, if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read these words, not to each other, but to the one who is seated upon the throne. Starting in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God 
saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To the one seated on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.